My name is Fred King, and I am an alcoholic. Hi, Fred. Uh, you, know, uh, you know, I lived a pretty normal childhood. Uh, you know, if, if you consider that both your parents were alcoholics and both their parents were alcoholics. Uh, you know, I just, you know, I, it was just normal. I mean, I just didn't have anything better to do with myself. I had, when I was a child, I just never fit in my skin. I just never felt comfortable with being who I am. I just didn't, it just never worked. Uh, you know, and then added to that, my father, for a long time, got into geographics. So I went to like 13 different grade schools. And I would make the decision before I got to the grade school, that is, before I saw the children, before I even knew, you know, the neighborhood or what they were like, I would make a decision on what they wanted me to be. And then I would be that person. I mean, I'd be an introvert one day, I'd be an extrovert the next day, I'd be the class bully, then I'd be the, the class whip. I mean, I was just all over the place, and I just made that up. And you do that, you know, with, with denial and delusion. Uh, you know, and kind of the, my, my experiences is that I, I came up with a new term called delusional deniability. Uh, and what that is is that deniable, deniability is that you deny something, you know it to be true, but you don't want to face the consequences, so you deny doing it or having involvement in it. Delusion is the opposite of that. That is, you don't know it's wrong. You just, you don't have any, the mind doesn't understand that. So what would happen is I just convinced myself that that's what reality was. And I, you know, and I, and I got rid of the real person and substituted the new person in that place. As an example of that is, is that when I was, you know, nine, ten, something like that. I used to play with my sister Phyllis, who's 18 months older than I am, on a fairly consistent basis because we moved all the time. She was my, you know, she had, she was a person I could play with. Unfortunately, I had to play all her game, you know, dolls and jacks and you know, hopscotch and that sort of thing. Uh, <clears throat> you know, but we were playing this one day. We were playing, and I can't remember what we were doing, but we were playing the game, and I was enjoying the living heck out of myself, so I didn't want to stop. And so when I came in the house, I'd wet my pants, right? And my mother yelled at me about wetting my pants. What did you do? And without missing a beat, I pointed to Phyllis and said, Phyllis did it. You know, <laughs> that is delusional deniability. <laughs> you know, I mean, it can't possibly float, but it's, you know, it, you know your, your mind thinks that it can. You know, and you're seven years old. Um, the other thing that really shaped me up, you know, was when I was about eight or nine, ten, my Uncle Johnny or my great-uncle Johnny, my grandfather's, on my mother's side's brother, was in an asylum for alcoholism. It's what they did back, you know, 50 years ago, 60, 70 years ago, 100 years ago. They just locked him up. They didn't know how to deal with it. Well, Johnny used to escape every once in a while, and he would come see his brother, who was my grandfather. And we were living with him for a while during one of our, our moves, and Uncle Johnny escaped, and what happened is that they would call, he would just go to the local bar, sit down, order himself a, uh, uh, you know, a boilermaker, and say, call my brother, and my, my grandfather was a big fish in a very small pond in Port Huron, Michigan, and he would go down and get Uncle Johnny. Now, go down and get Uncle Johnny is a, you know, is a relative term. They would go down, and two or three days later, they would make it home again, because <laughs> I mean, they were going to drink. Well, we're in this period where that day, my dad had decided that he was going to spend a lot of time with his son. So I was, you know, I was, every place my dad went, I went, you know, and I, he was going to really be the great father this, this week. And so 
my grandfather turned to my dad and said, would you like to go you know, down and pick up Johnny with me? Well, my dad's not going to turn down a three-day drunk. So he said, sure. He gets to the door and remembered then that he was, you know, he was being a father to his son and turned around to me and said, well, get your coat, boy, let's go. <laughs> so I went on my first drunk. I was eight, nine years old, something like that. But I distinctly remember sitting in that bar and watching these men in the bar sing and laugh and joke and flirt with the girls and have a great, great time. Right? And I remember thinking there, sitting there saying, when I grow up, that's what I'm going to be. You know, I, you know, there used to be a deal on television where, you know, the guy stumbled down the street and the ad, the caption I needed was, nobody wants to grow up to be a drug addict. Well, it's not true. I wanted to grow up to be a drug addict. I wanted to grow up to be an alcoholic. I wanted to be them. There was a couple problems with that. Is you know, number one, it's the fantasy of a seven-year-old. You know, but so you know, it really has got a lot of plenty problems in it. Then it's a fantasy. You know? But I chased that fantasy for 43 years, 44 years. I constantly wanted to be that person. I needed to be that person. All I wanted to do in my life was to be at the cool table. I just wanted to be as cool as they were. <clears throat> my problem was is that I have what, you know, my, the Groucho Marx syndrome. And Groucho Marx said that he could never join a country club that would let anybody like him be a member. <laughs> So I, you, by definition, if you're sitting at the cool table, you're a cool person. If you come over and sit at my table, you can't be a cool person because cool people don't talk to me. Therefore, you, you know, it's impossible to ever be at the cool table because the minute I sit on the table and they don't throw me out of there, I, I'm, the, that table doesn't be, is no longer the cool table. And that's all I wanted. I mean, I, you know, and I fought that whole thing. I did everything I could do in high school. You know, I played football. I, you know, in the wrestling team. I did everything I could to be one of the guys, not knowing that I couldn't be one of the guys because of my, my character flaws. Uh, you know, and I drank in high school, but I didn't drink real heavy. I mean, I you know, not anymore than the average person. You know, you know, maybe, you know, every Friday, Saturday night, I'd go out and get ripper and drunk. But, I mean, not that much. You know, I mean, you know, you, I didn't drink every day. I didn't drink a lot. I got out of high school and I joined the Marine Corps. And when I got out of the Marine, when I got in the Marine Corps, I ended up in an outfit called Third Force Recon, which is a very elite group of people in the Marine Corps. And it takes a very, very big effort to get there. I kind of snuck in the back door. I didn't do what everybody else had to do. I just kind of snuck in the back door. Uh, you know, but I was now in that group. And they were the cool guys. And if you didn't believe them, they'd kick the bejeebas out of you until you believed that they were the cool guys. I mean, they were the guys. We would walk into a bar, and they'd set their guy out on down and say, this is our bar. Leave. And everybody in the bar got up and left. I mean, they, you know, they were, they were, they were, that was what they were. And they drank very, very heavy. So my drinking career really ratcheted up, and, they, you know, and it fit right into my problem with my drinking, with my, with my deniability problem, my delusional problem. So I... You know, kind of an, up, fun, an off story that in this deal is I was sitting, one of the things they drank was sake and a, and a wine in the, in the Orient called Nakadama. Horrible stuff. I mean, it, it's horrible, horrible stuff. I left some in the canteen one time and it burned a hole in the bottom of the canteen. I mean, it burned, I mean, it literally burned the hole at the bottom of the canteen. I, you know, I, you know my, I, I didn't particularly like this stuff. I don't think anybody particularly liked this stuff. But it got you just right now. Well, I couldn't keep it down. So they decided the way to do that was I had to acquire a taste 
for this drink because that's what they drank. And if I was going to hang with them, I had to drink what they drank. So we got around, and there were seven of us sitting in a circle around a binjo ditch. And I don't know if you know what a binjo ditch is. It's an open trench sewer in the Orient. That's what they call them binjo ditches. So we sat there, and they'd hand me this bottle, and I would take a mouthful and pass the bottle to the next guy, and then promptly bend over and get violently ill. Right? And when I got up from being violently ill, the bottle would come back to me. I'd take another squig, pass the bottle, and get violently ill. The logic behind this whole thing was that a certain amount of that alcohol has to be absorbed into your body as it goes down, and a certain amount of that alcohol has to be absorbed in your body as it comes up. So that at some point in time, you'll get drunk. And when you get drunk, your body will then be able to take this poison. Right? So I sat there for like four or five hours doing this until I could finally get, get the bottle, the shot to stay down there. You know, but I, you know, so I was poisoning myself with something my body didn't want, but my need to be one of the group, to be in the cool group, was so overpowering for me that I would allow myself to do that to get there. Right? So now you know, I, got, I got out of the Marine Corps, and life was fine. I mean, you know, I had three years. I was going to college. Uh, I was drinking real heavy. I was bouncing in a bar in, in a little town called Manhattan Beach, California. And my joke is, is that the, the drug invaded the United States in 1963. And, I would, and, they, and they invaded in Manhattan Beach. And I was down there with a top hat and a, you know, in, a, in, the, in the drum major's deal to lead the parade. Because, I, you know, there was just, heaven was. I would, you know, I mean, all of a sudden, there was something out there that, you know, could get me really wrecked and let me still drink like a fish. And my drinking was, was not looked at as, as bad behavior. I was just in heaven. And I was in heaven for like three, four years. Uh, and there, Manhattan Beach has like 17,000, 18,000 people in it. And I, you know, and like 30 bars. And I had been kicked out of every bar in town, including the bar that I was bouncing in. So it's tough to be employed when you can't go to work. You know? So I'm sitting around, and, and I'd had other times in my life where, and a lot of people, and everybody goes through this, where you sit down and you think, you know, I'm powerless over alcohol, and my life is unmanageable. You know, maybe I should quit drinking. And I would have that, these thoughts, and I had these thoughts before that, and I had those thoughts then, and I've had them after that. And I sat down, and I thought, you know, I don't, you know, I, you know maybe I better readjust my life. So I'm readjusting my priorities and thinking about how to control my drinking and so on and so forth. And I got a job at McDonnell Douglas. Uh, at that time, my major in college was to be an engineer, math major, and, and at that time, they were doing what's called Cost plus hiring. I don't know if you're familiar with cost plus, but they were, they were building the Apollo rocket. They'd hire anybody that they could justify to hire, and then the government paid them over top of what they paid them. So they hired everybody. They didn't, you know, there wasn't a need of people. So I got to work, and I showed up, and they, uh, the, my boss informed me that, you know, they didn't have anything for me to do. There was no work to be done. I mean, they, they you know, there were ten times the people they needed in that job, but the government you know, had a guy walking around, and if you weren't doing something, you know, you were fired because your excess work then. I mean, they, they got you out of the deal. So I had to look busy. Well, there was nothing to do. I mean, some, one guy was mopping the floor, one guy was sweeping the floor, one guy was emptying the trash can, one guy was sharpening pencils. I mean, all things I didn't feel like I was qualified to do. 
So I sat down and it dawned on me that I could stand by the clock-in gate when I came in, and then the graveyard shift would leave, they would clock out, and I could just walk off the, out of the plant with the graveyard shift. And then when the swing shift came back in, I could just walk in the graveyard shift, hang around the clock, clock out, and go home. Right across the street from this is a bar. It was a topless <laughs> bar. It was a topless bar. Now, I'm in my new improved Fred King mode, you know, so I'm being responsible. So I sat down and analyzed out how much money I had a, a week over my cost of my, what I earned at this job to spend on liquor. Right? And I would sit in the bar and the waitresses would come by and say, would you like a beer? And I'd look at my watch and I'd say, I can't afford one for 22 minutes. <laughs> you know, I mean, I, you know, give me a couple minutes here. I can do it in you know, 22 minutes. And then, you know, I, after about two weeks of this, I convinced the owner that there was problems in this bar. There were a lot of rowdy people came in there after work. They got a little drunk because they've been working all night, you know, and he needed a bouncer. So the guy hired me as a bouncer. Right? Now, he only paid me a dollar an hour, but he gave me free beer. <laughs> so now, I get up in the morning, I go to McDonnell Douglas, I clock in, I walk back over, I walk into a bar, right? I sit down, I'm getting free beer, I'm talking to girls with no clothes on, right? And I don't know about you guys, but I took that as a sign from God that my drinking was a good idea. <laughs> I mean, you know, I mean, I went right away from I have a problem with alcohol to alcohol is the you know is the greatest thing in the world. Instantaneously blew that whole problem, first step right out of the water. Just pow, is gone. And my whole life was that was that deal. I did that constantly. I mean, it, you know, things would go great for four, five, six, seven years, and then you know, then the alcohol would get you know would get out of control. I would sit down and say, I've got to get this under control again. And while I was doing that, something else would happen again, and then, you know, I would say, oh, you know, I must be, you know, it must be what God wants me to do. I mean, the only time I ever put God in my life, by the way, was, you know, when he, when he did something that I could take, you know, it was good for me. I mean, if I did something, it was me that did it. You had nothing to do with it. You know, so anyway, I, I floated right around. I was, you know, great life. I mean, I floated through there. I made a couple bucks. I had, you know, I had a nice job. I got married. I had three and a half kids, or two and a half kids, or whatever it is you're supposed to have. Uh, you know, and, you know, everything was fine. And again, we were talking about this earlier. The problem you've got is that you don't realize when you're drinking like I drank, the horror you're doing to people. My wife is an unbelievable, or ex-wife, is an unbelievably beautiful, nice, nice person, and a great mother except that she also is manic-depressive. And she's diagnosed manic-depressive. She just won't take any medication for it. She refuses to accept the fact that she has a major problem. So I would come home from work, 6 o'clock, 7 o'clock at night. The kids would be sitting in the house, and my wife would be in a manic-depressive mode. She'd go in the bedroom, close the door, and, you know, and, and, and everybody was on their own. Well, I'd walk in the house, and the kids are going very quiet. Mom's not feeling good. She's in the bedroom. Well, I can solve this problem. I have money in my front pocket. There's a bar up the street that's got a girl that's going to like me, right? I don't need to sit here and put up with a wife that's, you know, not, not, not doing what she's supposed to be doing. So I left and went to the bar. Two or three days later, I come back. The problem, of course, is, is that I was leaving an 11-year-old, a 7-year-old, and a 6-year-old alone in the house by themselves. You know, you guys take care of yourself. Not my job. My job is to take 
the money into the house so you could make the house payment, you know, buy the cars, earn the money. My wife's job was to take care of you. If she chooses not to take care of you, then, you know, I don't know what to tell you guys. You know, I can't be here. I have things I have to do. I have to take care of Fred King. Fred King's got to be happy. And, and that's the way I live my life. You know, and you hurt staggering amounts of people. <clears throat> you know, consequently, what happens is that in 1986, I was in, an, uh, in the business of uh, security deal, and in 1986, the government changed the rules. They passed the 86 Act Reform Act, and they changed the rules, and they made it retroactive. So what I did three years ago was now illegal. And when I did it, it was illegal. It wasn't illegal then, but it is now. And so the federal government then filed what's called RICO. And seven other states decided to join them. So I figured I got to get myself sober. I got to get myself straightened around. I got to get to, you know, I got to fight this and win this. Or they're going to put me in the hooskow. So I fought that and I controlled my drinking to a certain extent. And I watched that. And it took me like five years. So in 1994, everybody had dropped out with the exception of the state of Arizona. And the state of Arizona came to me and said, look, we've got too much money tied up in investigating you. We're going to give you, we'll give you probation, and you can do it. If, the only person who would talk to me was a guy in Missouri, and he'd hired me, and I had a really good job done. I was making about 300 a year. So I was going to go down to Missouri, do this job, you know, and then I said, you know, I can pay you, you know, a lot of money in restitution, and everything's fine. And they said, you know, we'll do that, and then we'll give you seven years of probation, and you can do it in Missouri. The guy in Missouri that was the head of the probation department was a friend of the friend that offered me the job. He was a brother of, the, of his wife. You know, we discussed this, and he said, hey, you can drink as much as you want down here. I don't care. Right? You can, and we're having this conversation out in the boat in the middle of one of the lakes down there. So I'm going down to, to Missouri, get a job, and my life's back to normal. My children aren't talking to me. My w daughter has a restraining order on me. My wife has left me. I've lost eight or ten million dollars. You know, I've had open heart surgery. Right? I have some problems in my life, but my mind is saying, you know, it's just one of those down times. I mean, you know, it's not a big deal. It's just one of those down times. This will turn around and everything will be fine. Right? So I now come back to Arizona, right, in October 31st, Halloween of 1994. And I walked in front of the judge. I had three or four thousand dollars in my pocket. I had a round trip plane ticket. I had a ticket back to Missouri or back to Kansas City and a round trip plane ticket for myself and the girl that I was going out with there to go down to the Bahamas for two weeks and celebrate that everything was out of my life. My life was back to normal. I could go back to living my life. My children were out of my life and my wife was out of my life and my sister was out of my life and my, you know, everybody's out of my life. But I could go back and just rebuild my life and the heck with them. They didn't like me. I didn't need them. I could do what I needed to do to make Fred King happy. And that's all that matters. It's the only thing that mattered in my life was I needed to sit at the cool table. I needed to be happy. Right? So long story short, I walked in front of the judge. I got a paper from the state of Arizona signed by the judge and by the district attorney saying I got seven years probation. And the judge says, you know, I've been thinking about this, and I just don't think seven years probation is enough. Why don't we make it eight years in prison? Right? Now, you know, you, you know I mean, you, you, you got to what you do. You, whoa, you know, hold a phone. 
Now, as I sat in prison, I started thinking about this, and what happens is the first step is I'm powerless over alcohol, and I, my life is unmanageable. I had gone through that period of time 50 times in my life. Maybe, maybe not that, maybe only 20. But I'd gone through that a lot of times in my life. Right? And always something else came up, and I would just back out of that position. I don't, doesn't matter to me. Right? I don't, you know, I, was, I wasn't really serious about that. My life really wasn't messed up. You know, I really wasn't powerless over alcohol. I would just back out of the thing and go about my life. You know, the problem with, you know, the, the first step is honesty. You have to be totally honest with yourself that you are powerless over alcohol and your life is messed up. If you aren't that person, if you don't believe that, down to your toes, of your, you know, of your, you know, the bottom of your feet, you are not going to get sober. You have to believe that. That has to be there. And I didn't believe that. I kept asking God to help me. I'd say, you know, God, you've got to help me out here. I mean, these guys are going to try, try to put me in jail. You've got you know, you to get me at least sober enough to take care of myself. You know, you got to get me sober enough to get a job at McDonald Douglas. You got to get me sober enough to, you know, to, you know, to fix this. You got to get, you got to help me through this patch here. I just this little rough patch I got going. Just get me through that, and then I can take care of the rest. And when I did, then my life was no longer unmanageable, and the alcohol I would, I would no longer borrow it. I was, but I didn't think so. So I now, you know, have to spend, you know, it works out that I had to spend four years in prison. Is what it, what it works out to be, and. I then did that, and the first AA meeting I went to was in Sheriff Joe's. I went through detox at the tent city. And I got to tell you the truth, if you got a choice, don't go to detox at tent city. I mean, not a nice place to do detox. It's a horrible, horrible place. But I went through detox there, and I went through the, you know, the, the other system. And I went to one or two meetings. Unfortunately, the prison system does not have a good program for Alcoholics Anonymous. You would think they would, since 70 or 80 percent of the people that are there are drug addicts or alcoholics. Almost 80 percent of the crimes that are committed in the, in the state of Arizona are fueled by drugs or alcohol, and they do not have a rehabilitation thing in the system. They do not have doctors. They do not have teachers. They do not have counselors. They do not have any of that. My son, unfortunately, right now is in uh, over here at Perryville. Right? He's in in Steiner unit. I went to Steiner Unit when he got in there and said, I will bring an AA meeting into this prison. I did that three, four years ago, so I'm approved. I can go into the prisons. I'm cleared. I've got four or five friends of mine that are cleared and will go into the prison. We will come into your prison and we will give an AA program in this prison once a week. And the warden at Steiner Unit said, I don't need no stinking AA meeting in my prison. You know, and you know, there's nobody here that needs that. Well, I know of at least one person that does, you know, my son. So bottom line is you have to do the first step. So now the second step comes bopping up to us, you know. I mean, you know, you, know, you, you came to believe that an entity could bring us back to sanity. Well, you know, I mean, I wasn't insane. I might have been delusional. I might have been, you know, I might have been in denial. I might have been doing some bizarre thing, but I wasn't. I didn't think I was, you know, you know. Sherlock Holmes, you know, I didn't think I was, you know, I didn't, I didn't think I was, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't insane, right? But I had to come back to that belief. You have to understand that it's necessary for that to be there. You have to get, because that gives us hope. See, in solving a problem, you need 
The first thing you need to do is identify the problem and admit that you have a problem. You've got, and you've got to be totally honest with that thing. The next thing you have to do is then believe that there's a solution to that problem. You have to have hope. You have to have the rights to be there. You have to do that, and that's where God comes into this whole thing. And then the third step is that, you know, that's surrender. I'm willing to do whatever God wants me to do. I'm going to hand my life over to the care of God as I understand him. But it does not say I'm going to give God my life. It does not say I'm going to go to Bangladesh and, you know, and, and help the lepers. It does not say any of that. It says I'm willing to do this. Whatever God wants me to do, I will do. I'm willing to my care of my life over to a higher power as I understand him. That's what it wants. The next step, four through nine, are nothing more than how to handle your life over to God. I, and I need those steps. I can't live without those steps. Because I was 57 years old, 53 years old when I got sober. 57 years old, 50, whatever. You know, when I got sober, right? And I, I didn't know how to live. Because I never lived with a set of rules. There were no rules in my belief. The only rule there was was Fred King had to be comfortable. Fred King had to be happy. Fred King had to have whatever Fred King wanted. There was no rule. There was no understanding of this. I mean, you know, I didn't look at my character defects because I didn't have character defects. I needed my ego to do what I did. A professional football player cannot be a professional football player unless he has a large ego. It's not possible. He needs the ego to perform his job. The problem with that ego is when it gets self-will run riot in that ego. When you start thinking you can go into a bar and carry a gun in the city that says, if you, we catch you with an un, you know, unregistered gun, we will put you in jail for two years, end the conversation. There is no buts. There is no, you know, don't bring a lawyer. We don't give a damn. You are going to go to jail if you bring a gun in your possession in the city of New York. And a professional football player walked into a bar in New York, showed a gun to his friend, and he shot himself in the foot. Now, you think he's got a problem? I mean, you know, that's, that's ego run wild. I can do anything I want to do because I am great. And that's my problem. It's, my, it's not my ego who got me in trouble. It's the self-will that ran with that ego. It's not my, you know, my indifference to other people. It's not my, it, nothing, all these things that we have are part and parcel to us. You know, a friend of mine used to talk about all the, you know, the character defects we have as marbling in a steak. You can't possibly cut all the marbling out of the steak. First of all, it won't be any good. Secondly, it'll be a hamburger. I mean, you know, I mean, it won't be there. It'll be just a chunk of, you know, little pieces of meat. You can't do it. The marbling needs to be there. The character defects have to be in our life. They are part and parcel to our life. What we have to do is not to allow the, us to run wild with those character defects. We cannot be, you know, jealous. We cannot be resentful. We cannot be. Those things will kill us. They, I mean, sure as you're picking poison. You know, you get a resentment against somebody, you might as well just go out and shoot yourself. Because it's going to kill you. We will not survive if we do that. It's okay to be jealous. It's okay to have goals and want to beat that person. It's okay to have competitive edges. But that's not the same. There are different degrees in there. And, and that's where we've got to, understand, at least I had to understand, is I had to come to the deal where self-will had, couldn't be in charge of this whole thing. It had to be God. 
I was in charge. One of the things that you know, you know, I, I say all the time is that one of the things I found when I started doing this step was that you know, God, you know, I have self will. There's good news and there's bad news in having self will. The good news is, is there's absolutely nothing in this world that I can't do. There's nothing. Anything I want, anything I want to do, I can do. I have absolute full authority and full ability, and God gave me the talents and the ability to do that. I can have anything I want. That's the good news. The bad news is, God gave me free will. I can do any damn thing I want to do. You know, and I want to go have a drink. I go have a drink. I want to go cheat my wife. I wouldn't cheat in my wife. I want to not show up for a meeting at the, at the deal because I don't feel like talking to you today. I just didn't show up for the meeting. You know, the same coin, different sides. The same outlook, different sides. What we've got to do as alcoholics is we have to understand that we have the rights of free will. We don't have the rights of conclusion. We don't have the right of outcome. What we do cannot dictate what will happen in the future. I did everything I was supposed to do when I, when I, when I got in trouble. I mean, everything I was supposed to do. First of all, I wasn't guilty. The only state in the union that could have possibly bar, bar, prosecuted me and won is the state of Arizona, and I don't think they could have. I would have said no and, and fought them. But they gave me a very appealing deal. I could do anything I wanted to do. However, right, what I chose to do was to go out and get drunk. What I chose to do was to let my ego run wild. And if God had not done what he did for me, which is in one of the promises is, God will do for us, us what we cannot do for ourselves. I could not honor my commitment of not being, you know, I have powers over alcohol, and I could, you know, my life is unmanageable. I could not make that real. It was not possible for me. And I kept asking for God's help, and then I'd barbecue it. And then I'd ask for help, and you know, then I'd Finally, God sat down and said, you know, I've had enough of this. So I said, I'll put you someplace where you can have a drink. I'll just lock you up for a while. You know, and that way, you'll get what you want. And it's exactly what happened. It's exactly what it, you know, where it came down. So the worst day of my life becomes the best day of my life. Because if he hadn't done that, if he had not got a judge to do something that he can't do, it's illegal for what the judge did was illegal to do. If the judge had not done what he did, I would be out there drinking and, you know, and going crazy and still harming everybody in the world. I would still be out there. I wouldn't have a relationship with my daughters. I wouldn't have a relationship with my son. I wouldn't have a relationship with my ex-wife. I wouldn't have a relationship with my sisters. You know, and my cousins, and my, you know, and my grandchildren. All that would have been out of my life. And it's not out of my life. My oldest daughter does Thanksgiving dinner, and she has been doing it for years. I mean, 25 years. And dinner's at 2 o'clock in the afternoon. That's the way it is. You want to eat with the group, you be there too. Now, you can come in at 4 and, and, and eat off by yourself, but the, you know, the, the dinner is served at 2 o'clock. Well, the Scotts, North Scottsdale Fellowship Club over in Scottsdale has a Thanksgiving and Christmas dinner. And I go over there and volunteer every Thanksgiving and every Christmas and serve and, you know, and help set up and, and do that. So there's no way I can do that and then make her house, who she lives in North Scottsdale, and make her house by 2. I can get there at 3.30, you know, 4, but I can't get there at 2. 
And, you know, and so the first couple of years that I did that, I was missing dinner. And my daughter then changed the time from 2 to 5 so that I could make dinner, so that dinner could be with her dad. You know, something that she'd been doing one way for 20 years. And she had, you know, you got to remember at that time, I was maybe 9, 10 years sober. Nine years prior to that, she had a restraining order against me. She didn't want me in her life. She didn't want me near her children. Now, you know, I'm doing this. She would make up excuses. You know, Fred, i got to go out of town for three days. Could you go up and stay with the children? Her daughter was 16. Her son was 14. They don't need me to babysit them. Like, they, you know, they, you know like they, what have they been doing for the last five years that I've been around? They've been babysitting themselves five years younger. They don't need me. But my daughter went out of her way to put me into a position where I could then bond with my grandchildren. I could then get a relationship with my grandchildren. My other daughter does that. I, you know, I have a great relationship with my grandchildren. I have a great relationship with, my, with both my daughters and my son. I, you know, I talk and, and, and get along with my ex-wife. I mean, you know, it, it, it's still an ex-wife position, but we get along okay. You know, both my sisters are now back in my life. You know, my brother-in-law is back in my life. You know, I mean, cousins, you know, I, her, my ex-wife's brother lives in, you know, down in uh, Surprise. And we go out to lunch like once a week. I mean, you know, I'm nothing to him. There's absolutely no relationship between me and he is, you know, I mean, you know, you know, but we go out because, you know, he, we have a relationship. We know each other and we like each other and we're about the same age and we have a lot in common. And he likes me and I like him. All because I don't drink. So then I have to do the 10th, 11th, and 12th step, which is giving back, giving back to God, giving back to the program of Alcoholics Anonymous that gives me all these things. Because without Alcoholics Anonymous, without God, you know, and without the steps of alcohol, you know, with, with the steps, and without the fellowship, I have nothing. I'm some guy sitting in Missouri, you know, sitting in a bar, crying in my soup once every four or five years because life isn't going well, right? Waiting to pick up some, you know, bar fly that doesn't like me at all. The only reason she's with me is because I'm buying the booze, right? You know, and that's where my, that's my life. And that's my story in my life. And I see people, unfortunately, sitting in bars here that are doing that. And you want to walk up and just grab them by the shoulder and say, listen, I've got a solution to this problem. There is a cure for this problem. Come with me and we can fix this problem. You just can't do that. I, you know, my joke is, why couldn't somebody get a hold of me at 30 years old and put this in my mind? I mean, my life would have been a lot better. My children's life would have been a lot better. You know, my grandchildren's life would have been a lot better. Everybody in the world would have been better. I mean, literally, when I first got sober, my joke used to be is I used to just walk up to everybody I met, and I apologized. Because I drank off and on, for, not off and on, on, for five decades. I drank hard in 59 to 94. Literally five decades, I drank it. And I drank in California, I drank in Arizona. Well, you know, I had to hurt somebody, you know? I mean, it was, it was impossible not to have that happen. You know, I just cut too wide a swath. Once I got sober, I realized that I had to rely on just who I really did damage. And there's still people out there that I didn't, I don't know. The reason I introduced myself as Fred King is I don't want anybody to say, I wonder if that's the same guy. I want them to know that's me. Because if I did something to you, I want you to come up to me so that I can take my responsibility for the, my actions. And I can then get that out of my life and get that away. 
That's what I want. You know, I want the life of, you know, of what Alcoholics Anonymous gives me. I want to be able to get on it. You know, again, we were talking earlier today about uh, one of the things I do is I get on to the program. I, I do a lot of stuff on the net and talk to people and stuff. And a friend of mine and myself started a group called Two Sober Guys, you know, which is just, you know, a couple guys that, you know, put together a, a page on, on Facebook. And what we do is we offer... You know, I've got 18 years, he's got 24, and we offer a lot of advice, and other guys come in and offer advice, and we post a lot of inspirational pictures, and we have other things, and we've offered, you know, some people some help on how to manage treatment houses and how to manage business and that sort of thing because we have the expertise to do that. And we, you know, when we do that, the advantage of that is, is I now get a lot of people that come to me with a problem. Or they come to me and say, what about, you know, we were talking about earlier, do you think it's bad if you drink near beer? I personally think that's a major problem. I personally think that's a slope that I wouldn't go near with a gun. But that's my choice. If you want to drink near beer, that's your, you know, your choice. That's your business, not my business. I have an employee, a, a sponsor right now, they'll call me up and say, well, can I do this? You can do anything you want to do. You don't understand. I'm not in charge here. I'm just telling you that if you do that, you're putting yourself in harm's way. If you put yourself in harm's way, you might go back out. And the biggest fear I've got, the absolute biggest fear I've got, is I hear people all the time say they're really worried if they drink again, they will die. And my fear is not that I go back out there and die. My fear is I get out there and start drinking again. And my ego and my self-will and my, you know, and my insane thinking will not let me come back into the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous again. And I will sit out there five feet away from the door that can make my life wonderful and die a miserable, horrible death. That's, you know, that keeps me awake at night. It petrifies me that that's possible for me to do that. It's just a horrible, horrible thought for me to do. But what I say to everybody I, when I talk to them and I share is that you've got to come to the program. You have to work the program. You have to work the steps. You have to get a sponsor. You have to come to meetings. You have to rely on God. You, you, know, and you have to do that. If you don't do those things, you will not stay sober. Bill was asked in 1951 or two. they interviewed him, and they asked him if there was anything he would change in the big book. And his answer was, the only thing he would change in the big book is where he says, seldom do we see a person fail that has fully followed our, our path. To never have we seen a person fail that fully followed our path. Because if you do what you're supposed to do as the book lays it out, and you know, with modifications, as we, I talked about earlier, if you do that and make that program yours, and you live to that program, a great program. You have a phenomenally great life. You have a, you know, you can do anything you want to do. I attended bars, you know, and uh, buffets and, you know, and, and parties and stuff. You know, doesn't even phase me. I mean, God has taken the, the, the compulsion for me to have a drink out of my life. All I have to do is make sure that stays out of there. I can go to a bar and sit down. I love to go to sports bars and sit down and cheer on a football game. You know, I mean, and the girls love the waitresses and think I'm the greatest guy in the world because I walk in over a pitcher of iced tea and give her $10 and, you know, tip her $9.50. I mean, she thinks I'm the greatest guy in the world, you know, where everybody else is getting a pitcher of beer and giving her 50 cents. You know, you know so life is great if you do that. You know, and, you know, and I just implore everybody to, you know, get the program. And I, now I'm just repeating myself all over the place, so I guess I'm done.
Are there any questions? <laughs>